0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So this is the last night we are going to do the Doctrine of Sanctification. And over the past four weeks we have studied this topic, and let's just kind of review, because I know we were off last week when it was spring break, but sanctification, as opposed to justification. Now, justification is that one-time declaration, God declares you not guilty, you're permanently in a position of being accepted by God, it doesn't change, you're saved, you're secure, that's justification. Sanctification is the process of growing to be more holy, to get rid of sin in your life, that can change and that can fluctuate. Now, we don't base the assurance of our salvation on our sanctification, because if we did that, we would be pretty desperate all the time, because sometimes we're not at the level we'd like to be. So what have we learned over the past four weeks? Let's just kind of do a little bit of review. So I'll just kind of give you some big ticket items that we've talked about. So number one, sanctification was a struggle, a lifelong struggle with sin. Because it's a lifelong struggle, the Bible calls us to kill sin in our lives. We also talked about the role of God's law as a rule for living the Christian life, that we still, as Christians, are bound to live by the Ten Commandments, not to earn our salvation, but as a way to, as a helpful way to follow God's God's law. And then we talked about it's a joint partnership between us and the Holy Spirit, God works in us, to work and to will for his good pleasure. And then God transforms our minds and renews us at differing rates and levels of growth. We need the Holy Spirit to give us that effort to be able to do it. And then the last couple of weeks, we talked about the means of grace that God has given us. The outward means of grace is being part of a worship service where you sit under sound preaching. You're you're part of the corporate gathering where God's ministers to you through the, the gathered worship. And then last time we met, we talked about the private means of grace, which is more your personal Bible study. We talked about reading God's word, memorizing God's word, meditating on God's word, and obeying God's word. And so tonight what I want to do is I want to examine two ditches or dangers or pitfalls or abuses of the doctrine of sanctification that we can be prone to fall into if we're not careful, okay? And these are two extremes, okay? The first thing we're going to talk about is legalism. The second thing we're going to talk about is license or this whole idea that I can do whatever I want now that I'm saved. So Galatians 3, Paul says this in verses 1 through 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What's Paul saying there? Did you become a Christian by works of the law or by the Holy Spirit opening your eyes and granting you faith? Which, which is the answer? Is it through the Holy Spirit or through the works of the law? Holy Spirit. So we became Christians through the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, now why are you trying to continue to live the Christian life through your own power as opposed to the Holy Spirit? So the point in sanctification is God gets us in through the power of the Holy Spirit. God continues to keep us in and grow through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the gospel of grace is so very important as we think about Living the Christian life. And so legalism is a denial of the gospel of grace. License, or I can do whatever I want to do, is also a denial of the gospel. So we are going to look at these two extremes tonight in two different passages of Scripture. So we are going to go back to the Gospel of Luke. So I, you to, I want you to open your Bibles to um, Luke chapter 11. And this is where Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees. And he's pronouncing woes. And a woe is like, this is a really terrible thing to happen to you. This is the opposite of a blessing, it's, it's a woe. So, Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Okay, so Jesus pronounces three woes on these Pharisees. And a woe could be translated like this, how terrible for you. How bad for you, Pharisees. And so these woes that Jesus pronounces show a legalistic heart. Okay. So what is a heart of legalism? What is legalism? Let me just give you a basic definition of legalism. Okay. It's not in your notes, but here's a basic definition. Legalism is when you... Two, two, there's two aspects to legalism. One is you try to obey God's law as a means to earn your salvation. Law keeping. If I just obey the Ten Commandments good enough, God will accept me and I can earn my salvation. That's probably not something that we're going to fall trapped to because we understand the gospel. The one that's probably more a trap is legalism would be I have created my set of man made rules that aren't in the Bible, and if you don't live up to my standard, I'm going to look down upon you with pride. And I'm going to hold you to a standard that's not in the Bible, and you have to keep up that standard. If you want to be my friend, if you want to be in good graces, if you want to be part of the group. Okay. So extra biblical requirements. So let's look at these three woes that Jesus pronounces on these Pharisees. So the first woe, you have a legalistic heart when you follow your own little rules but neglect the bigger things that matter to God. Now notice what Jesus says about these Pharisees. He says there in verse 42, You tithe, or you give 10% of the mint and the rue and every herb, but you neglect justice and the love of God. Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 14 required the Israelites to set aside 10% or a tithe of their produce to support the temple system to help those that were poor, to take care of widows and orphans. And so this was a mandated tithe. And But here's the thing. There was no mandated tithe on the little things like, like your little garden plants. Like, it would be like you go over to Home Depot during the springtime and you buy your little vegetables or whatever. And there's, there was no law in the Old Testament that said that you had to tithe on those little herbs and vegetables. So their focus was I'm going to focus on these little minute details that I've made up to make me look real spiritual. I'm going to focus on the little things that I think are really, really important, but what were they neglecting? Jesus says you're neglecting justice and the love of God. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So basically what they're doing is the things that God is clear about, like loving Him and serving Him, they're not following those, but they're being hyper-spiritual over these little things that they've made up. So they're majoring on the minors, but forgetting the important things. They've kind of, you're legalistic when you set up these little rules that you want to follow and make others follow, but you're neglecting the things that God has clearly spoken. Micah 6.8, he has told you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's a clear teaching of Scripture, to, to love the Lord your God, to walk humbly. There's no clear mandate to tithe on your herbs and spices. Okay, So when you become overly legalistic and rigid about keeping your little man-made rules, but neglect the big things of God... You're basically being a hypocrite. You're being legalistic. So we need to be very careful. Now, let me just stop right here. One of the things, this is not in your notes, but it's something that we need to address. Okay, so I'm going like, to pause, time out, I'm going to address this real quick. Okay. What you're hearing a lot today from so-called Christians that don't want to hear biblical truth, when you say something that's clearly in the Bible that's maybe controversial or maybe something the culture doesn't want to hear, you may often hear people say, well, you're being legalistic. You're just being pharisaical. You're being legalistic. So let me ask you a question. Are you being legalistic when you're holding to clear biblical truth? So for example, if the Bible says you should not commit adultery and you say adultery is sinful, are you being legalistic? So we need to be very careful because there's this attitude, especially among progressive Christianity, for us, when you stand up for clear biblical truth and you say, this is what the Bible says, some people may accuse you of being legalistic. That's not being legalistic, you're just being biblical. Legalistic is where you say, here's something that's not chapter and verse, I've made up as a rule, and I'm holding you to it, and I'm going to look down upon you if you don't follow it. Okay, So, let me give you an example. Is there a verse in 2nd Hezekiah that says, thou shalt not see a rated R movie, even if it's about Jesus dying on the cross? Is there? there? There's no verse, right? Okay, so, is there? Is would it be legalistic for me to say, you should absolutely under no circumstances ever see a rated R movie, and if you do, you're going to hell. Is that legalistic? Okay, if I say You should be wise in what you watch because the Bible says to guard your heart and you don't want to expose yourself to things that may be sexually immoral. Now, is that being legalistic? No. You see the difference between the two? One is here's a biblical mandate. The other one here's an extra biblical man-made rule that's kind of a, a majoring on the minors. Okay, so that's what they're doing. They're tithing on these little tiny herbs and spices, but they're neglecting the big things of God. Okay, let's look at the second woe. You have a legalistic heart when you crave all the attention for your moral superiority. Now, where do we see this in the passage of Scripture? What's the second woe that Jesus tells these Pharisees um, that, that, that they're doing? He says there in verse 43, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. The whole idea was that when you went to synagogue, the closer you sat to the front, the more religious and moral you were. You wanted everyone to think you're so spiritual and I'm so good. And you want people to know that like you're always talking about your quiet time and talking about how spiritual you are and how you're so much better than other people spiritually. You kind of look down on others that haven't quite arrived where you've arrived. And so you kind of have this air of superiority that, that look at me, look how spiritual I am. Look at how much I read my Bible. Look at how much I look how much better I am than those, those other people there that aren't quite as spiritual as I am. No, nobody can live up to my morality, my spirituality. John 5:44 says this: "How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You want to receive glory from one another? You don't want to glorify God. So part of being legalistic is you're what I would call a glory seeker. You want others to look at you, and you want to make a lot of yourself. You want to be morally superior. You want others to think you're really, really religious and spiritual, something special, and you're going to go around and toot your horn and let people know about it. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. Okay, and here's the last one. This is kind of the hardest one. The the third woe here. You have a legalistic heart when you are spiritually dead on the inside, but look religious on the outside. What does Jesus say to these Pharisees in verse 44? Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, let me explain unmarked graves here for a moment, because you're like, "What's, what's this all about? So in ancient Israel... If you came into contact with a dead body or you accidentally walked on a grave that you didn't know because it was not marked, you would be ceremonially unclean. Because basically, according to Numbers chapter 19, if you came across a dead body, you touched a corpse, or you even walked on a grave that wasn't marked, you would be ceremonially unclean and you could not go to church or synagogue or be around other people. So to prevent this from happening, they would whitewash the tombs in the springtime so that you wouldn't inadvertently walk on a tomb by accident. Okay, so they would go over there and like put chalky white stuff on it. So, you know, that's a tomb. Don't step on it. Because if you accidentally stepped on it, "Uh uh-oh, I stepped on a tomb. I am ceremonially unclean. I've been around a dead person. I've got to go through this purification ritual. I can't go to synagogue. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, he kind of echoes this in Matthew 23:15. "Woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte you make him twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves." What he's saying is these Pharisees are spiritually dead on the inside. They're like a tomb. What, what's what's inside of a tomb? A dead body. What does the outside look like? Oh, it's all nice and shiny and white. It looks really good. And so here's legalism is I'm really trying to make myself on the outside look really, really good for others. I'm going to whitewash. I'm going to shine the apple. I'm going to make myself look superior. I'm going to make myself look religious. But on the inside, you're spiritually dead. You may not even be a believer. There's no spiritual life there. Your heart is a graveyard. Now, These three woes demonstrate outward fruit or manifestation of a heart that is far from God. So, as we've been talking about sanctification these past few weeks, where's the real issue? The real issue is the heart. If the heart is not changed, the outward behavior is not going to change. You can do all the outward legalistic behavior to make others think that you're good and not have a changed heart. So only Jesus can change your heart from the inside out. So if you're not a believer, you need to be sovereignly raised to new life through Jesus and the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit making you spiritually alive because you're spiritually dead. If you are a believer and you fall into the trap of legalism, you need to pray for God to give you a soft heart. Because what's happened is you've become blinded to your pride, you've become hard-hearted to the things of the Lord, and you're trying to prove yourself, you're trying to look morally superior, you're trying to do all of this man-made religion to somehow either earn or keep yourself in God's good graces, or make yourself look better to others. That's not true sanctification. That is works-based righteousness, doing things out of the flesh, doing things with a prideful heart, trying to earn God's favor by doing stuff so that God will love you, or doing these extra-biblical man-made things that somehow you think will make you morally superior so that so that's danger number one we we can succumb to legalism it's very easy when you're legalistic you become prideful you become prickly you become looking down upon others and um, pretty soon there's no gospel what does the gospel tell you the gospel says all of us are equally sinful and need Jesus I'm no better than you, you're no better than me. We're all beggars that need sovereign grace, and we've been saved by grace, and we need that grace for our initial salvation, and we need that grace to continue in our salvation through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit changing us from the inside out. So that's number one, legalism. Now the opposite extreme is what we call license, or I'm going to give you the big word anti When's the last time you heard a sermon on anti Let me tell you why it's called anti okay? I'm not expecting you to remember these big words, but do you guys know what the word anti- means? Against. Okay. I was teaching a Bible study the other day, and somebody says, is this against garden gnomes? anti is like against garden gnomes? I'm like, yes, I'm adamantly against garden gnomes in my garden. That's what anti nomianism is, is... You're against garden gnomes. No, the Greek word nomos, N-O-M-O-S, is the word for law. So antinomian means anti-law, or I don't care about God's rules. I'm going to live however I want. That's basically what antinomianism is. So it's basically the attitude of this. God has forgiven me of my sins, yeehaw. I'm eternally secure and can never lose my salvation. Yeehaw! I know I'm going to heaven when I die. Yeehaw! Therefore, I don't need to worry about God's rules or holiness. I can live however I want because, after all, God will just forgive me. Is there a yeehaw behind that one? (laughs) No, that's the first three are truths, right? You are eternally secure. You are forgiven. You do have the inheritance of heaven waiting for you. Those are true. Therefore, not true. The second half, not true. You can't live however you want. Now, let's look at this. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Romans chapter 6. And I'm going to address something tonight that's going to be very foreign to you. And I thought I would do this because um, it's not something we talk about even in our own culture because of America's history and just the word itself is a trigger word but it's in the Bible, and you need to know it's there. So let's turn to Romans chapter 6. So let me kind of give you the background of Romans just to kind of let you know because we're coming in halfway through or at least six chapters in. So in Romans chapter 1, Paul lays the foundation and says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation of all who believe, the Jew first and the Gentile. And then in verse 18 of chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 3, Paul basically lays forth the case that we're all sinners. We're sinners. we under God's wrath. Gentiles are sinners. Jews are sinners. We're all sinners. We need Jesus. And then in the middle of chapter 3, he pivots and he begins to talk about the gospel. So from the middle of chapter 3 all the way to the end of chapter 5, Paul is talking about the glories of Jesus, the gospel, the cross, what it means to be justified, what it means to be redeemed, what what it means for Jesus to be poured out as a propitiation, what it means for for Christ to save us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then, so so Paul's been just given the the beauty of the gospel. It's salvation by free grace. God saves us. There's nothing we can do. It's not by works. It's by grace alone. And then somebody is going to stand up in the audience and say, now, wait a minute, Paul. If that's true, if if grace is as good as you say it is, if if God forgives, and it's that good, and and there's nothing I have to do to earn it, and salvation is is a free gift of grace, then obviously, Paul, I can go send my heart out so God will keep forgiving me. I love sinning. God loves forgiving. Let's just keep this relationship up. Okay, this is where we come into chapter 6, verse 1. So, this is the objection or the thing that Paul's, Paul's going to raise this objection. So you guys there, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Here's the question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the question. Do you keep sinning so that God keeps forgiving you and showing you grace? And what's Paul's answer to that? By no means. That's strong in the original language. I think that King James even says something like, God forbid. Like, this is adamantly no. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here's Paul's basic answer. If you are truly saved, you can cannot continue in a life of sin because you're a new creation just like baptism is a picture of you going under the water and coming back up when you're saved your old life was buried and you're raised to a new life so here's what paul's saying you will not want to do that and you'll have the power to say no to that now does that mean that we're always going to do it No, it doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we're never going to fail. It doesn't mean we're never going to sin. But what he's saying is, is you cannot, as a Christian, have the attitude that I'm going to just keep continuing into sin. So an abuse of sanctification is, I can live however I want. I can keep sinning. I can continue in sin because God is just going to keep forgiving me. Paul says you can't do that. You're, You're new in Christ. That's not the way that we should live. Okay, now go down to verse 15. Now, here's the trigger word. What does your uninspired heading say, at least in the ESV above verse 15? Mine says slaves to righteousness. Okay, so we're going to talk about slavery. Just that very word conjures up images in our culture that are pretty negative based upon our history. Now, there is an evil history of slavery in America, and there's an evil history of Jim Crow, and there's an evil history of civil rights abuses. And so anytime we talk about slavery, we have to be very careful that we're, we're speaking carefully based upon how Paul was speaking in that ancient culture, okay? So this is not going to make a lot of sense to modern listeners. But I thought I wanted to expose it to you because this is not something we talk about. So let me just ask you, before we even read this, when you hear the word slave, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? You have an master. You have an owner. You're in bondage. You are owned by another, and you must obey that master. Okay, so let's see what Paul says here, and I'm going to try to explain this the best I can. So remember what Paul said in verse 1, can we keep keep sinning so that God's grace will increase? And what did he say? By no means. You're going to see the same exact repetition of that in verse 15. So let's, let's start in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Same concept. Do we continue to sin because now we've been saved by grace? And Paul says, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Sanctification. There's that word, sanctification. Now, Paul, twice in verse 1 and 2, and in verse 15, has that by no means. So, we cannot continue to live a lifestyle of unrepentant sin because our old self, that is, who we were in Adam as unregenerate sinners, That old self has died. We've now been raised to new life. We are now regenerate believers in Christ. God has saved you. God has set you free. And so the point is live like it. Live like it. Now, slavery is the imagery here. So let me tell you here what Paul is saying. Paul is saying this. As a Christian, you are free from sin, but that does not give you freedom to sin. Does that make sense? You're freed from sin, but that does not give you freedom to sin. So we are free from sin in the sense that, okay, in your old self, when you were non-Christian, when you were unregenerate, non-Christian, you were a slave to the law. You were a slave to sin. In other words, it was a dominating power in your life that you could not escape. You could sit there and try to rattle the cages. You could sit there and try to get out, but you could not. You were in bondage to sin and into slavery to sin, and and you had to obey sin as your master. So as a non-Christian, when sin would tell you what to do, what did you do? You obeyed it. You did it. But now, as a Christian, you've been set free from that sin, which means that you can't just do whatever you want because you are going to serve somebody. The question is not, this is where it gets really kind of confusing, the question is not are you a slave, the question is who's your master? Who's your master? Are you going to serve sin or will you serve the Lord? So, we cannot continue in unrepentant, habitual sin as those that have been set free from sin because the Holy Spirit has been given to us. We have the power to say no. As a matter of fact, God's grace gives us the power to say no. Titus 2, 11 and 12, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel, gives you the ability to say no. So as a Christian, you can say no to sin. As a non-Christian, could you say no to sin? Not really. You could maybe modify your behavior and you could maybe fear getting caught, but ultimately, as a non-Christian who's enslaved to sin, you had to obey your master and you really couldn't say no for the long haul. Now as one set free with the Holy Spirit living in you. Can you say no? Yes, the Holy Spirit gives you the power to do that. Now let's talk about slavery. Why does Paul use the imagery of slavery? Slavery was a lot different back in that culture. Um, It wasn't chattel slavery like we had in America in the Civil War South. Um, sometimes slaves could even like go home and maybe live in their own house. But really, a slave had no rights. You could not own property. Your master could come in and, and your master, like let's, this is like a really sad thing that happened back in slavery. You may be married to your, you and really sometimes slaves couldn't even legally be married. But let's say that you were married to your wife and your master came to you and said, "I want," or another master came and said, I want to buy your wife as a slave, made arrangements between the slave owners, they would separate families. So a wife may go live in another city and break up families, and they would have no no recourse. They couldn't sue. They couldn't do anything. They may take their children. And so what often happened was if somebody was really, really desperate, like they owed a lot of money, they were in major debt, they would sell either themselves or a family member into slavery. So like a parent... A lot of times parents sold their kids into slavery just to get out of debt. So sometimes kids didn't even, weren't even raised by their parents, they were raised in a slave home. And so there's this whole idea of living under the control of someone else as your master. So when you presented yourself as a slave, you were under control of the master and you had to do what the master said. Whatever your master said, you had to do. And so Paul says there in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. Now, here's the point. If you're a non-believer, you're a slave of sin. If you're a believer, you're a slave to righteousness. But here's the problem for believers Here's the problem for us sometimes. Even though we have died to sin as our master, sometimes we as Christians want to go back and live like we're under sin's rule. Now, in reality, we cannot be under sin's dominion anymore, but we can live like it. So it's kind of like this. Picture yourself in a prison cell. You're a slave in a prison cell. You can't get out you're enslaved. All of a sudden, somebody comes and buys you out of slavery, buys you out of prison. The prison doors are open. You are free. You go out. You are now a free person. Your life has totally changed. You've gone from being in prison, being enslaved, to being free, being adopted into the family. The prison door is open. You're out. Okay. Technically, you're free, right? But what do sometimes Christians we want to do? I want to go back and get in that prison cell. Now, that's a dumb thing to do. Why would you want to do that? You don't consciously say, hey, I'm going back in the prison cell because you really can't do it. But what you're doing is anytime you end up living your life in habitual sin, you're basically saying, I'd rather go back and live like I was a non-believer in that prison, in that slavery, than to live for Christ. But here's the issue. As a Christian... You have a new master. Who is your new master? Your new master is Jesus, the Lord, and you want to serve him. Now, in verse 17, Paul gives thanks. What does he say there in verse 17? Thanks be to God that you who were once... You may want to... Paul, pay attention to that little word, once. Once. That will help you. When Paul uses the term once, oftentimes, he's talking about your old life, not who you are anymore. You were, past tense, I am thanked, thanks be to God, that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're committed. So basically, Paul's saying, I'm I'm giving thanks to the Lord for this radical transfer from the dominion of slavery to sin to being in Christ. I was once enslaved. I was once in bondage, but now I've been freed. I'm no longer in that slavery to sin. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we are in a new position. And what is that position there in verse 17? Now we want to obey From the heart. We want to obey from the heart. So let me ask you a question. As a Christian, are we called to obey Jesus? Yes. But how do we obey now? Do we obey out of fear, out of drudgery, out of trying to earn? How do we obey now? We obey from the heart. Why? Because our heart has been changed. Our old stony dead heart's been replaced with the heart of flesh, and that new heart beats, if you will, to want to obey God. So we are now in a new position with a new master, and we want to obey him from the heart, not out of fear of punishment, but because he's a good master, and he is worthy of our obedience. And then in verse 18, Paul says, Having been set free from sin, we become slaves of righteousness. He describes this new condition of freedom. So, here's the thing that doesn't make sense when you read this, okay? Did, it, did you catch it? Is this confusing to you? Because Paul says, you go from being a slave to being a slave. Wouldn't you think he'd say you go from being a slave to being free? What does he say? You go from being a slave to sin to now being a slave of Christ. That doesn't make sense to us. Because what's the first thing we think of? I don't want to be a slave to anybody. And how in the world can slavery in any way be positive? So, this is where it's countercultural. This is where it's radical. This is where it doesn't quite make sense to our modern sensibilities. Being a slave to Christ is actually a positive thing because he's a good master and we've been set free to, to worship him. So, as those who've been set free from the slavery of sin, we are now those who are free in Christ. We serve a new master we become slaves of righteousness. So we still have a new master. It's not sin anymore. The new master is the Lord. And we don't serve our Lord out of fear of punishment or trying hard to earn His favor, but we serve Him as our master with joy and willingness and gratitude for our newfound freedom in Christ as forgiven children. So, the question is not who, the question is who's your master? If you're a non-Christian, your master is sin. If you're a Christian, your master is Christ. And you're a slave no matter what. The first type of slavery is bondage, it's condemning. It's harsh. You relate to God as a judge. You're under his condemnation. You can't do anything to please him. You're spiritually dead. That's the type of slavery it is. Wicked, unrelenting, harsh bondage. As a Christian, you've been set free from that, but you're now in God's household, but you still serve him as your master but now you serve him as your father who loves you and you do it with joy and you do it with gratitude and you know he's never going to kick you out of the house and you know that you're never going to lose your salvation and you do it because there's joy and security there now as a slave to Christ. Whereas before, there was fear, there was punishment, there was wrath. Now, what did you used to do? In verse 19, Paul tells you what you used to do when you were in that old condition of being enslaved to sin. What does he say there in verse 19? I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. I like when Paul just kind of throws it in there. Paul, we're not really tracking with what you're saying. This is kind of deep anyway, but thanks for toning it down and putting the cookies on the lower shelf so we can understand what you're saying. You guys have natural limitations, but he says, for just as you once, there's that word once, once before you presented your members, and that's your body parts, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So what did you used to do when you were a slave to sin? You just gave in to sin, and it led to more sin, and it led to more sin. It was habitual sin, and it was just enslavement to that sin. Paul says in Titus 3, um, 3, For we ourselves were once, there's that word once again, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So in our previous life of being a slave to sin, before we were saved, we could not escape the downward spiral into sin. There are two things you did not have as an unregenerate, lost, unsaved person. You did not have the ability to stop sinning and you did not have the desire to stop sinning. In other words, you didn't want to stop and even if you wanted to stop, you couldn't stop. What has been given to you as a new creation in Christ? Those two things have been given to you now. So what can you say as a Christian? I can stop sinning and I want to stop sinning. Why? Because now you have the Holy Spirit living in you, giving you that power to be able to do it. Before you couldn't. It just led to more and more and more sin, more and more enslavement. It was a downward spiral. Okay, at this point, Paul has been talking about statements of reality, things that are true. In 19, at the second half of verse 19, he, he gives the... The the only command or instruction or imperative in this entire section. At the end of verse 19, So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Okay, present your body parts, the totality of who you are, to being slaves of righteousness. In other words, you're a slave now, but in a good way. And so present your bodies as slaves to doing what's morally right, which leads to more and more being like Jesus and growing in holiness. So there's the word sanctification. If you want to know, like, where do we get the word sanctification? There's the word right there. When you, as a new, as, as a, as a regenerated, born-again, justified Christian, that's who you are. You don't make yourself that. That's who you are. Basically, Paul says, okay, that's, that's who you are. Live like it. And when you live like it and when you present yourselves, when you, when you pursue holiness, that is going to be sanctification. It's going to be that process where you're going to be growing more and more like Jesus. But you have a responsibility, I have a responsibility to present our bodies in such a way that we live according to God's plan. 2 Corinthians 7 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness and completion in the fear of God. Let's live clean lives of integrity. For the glory of God. Present your members. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-7. This is the will of God. Okay, when Paul says this is the will of God, you kind of want to listen up. What's God's will? This is the will of God, your sanctification. There's that word again that we've been talking about the past five weeks, your sanctification, your growth, your cleansing, your becoming more like Christ, your holiness. What is that? That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, so that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Now, the only way we can present our bodies as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification is because of the Holy Spirit. Now, it, I think Paul's assuming it here. It's not explicitly taught here in Romans, but we know from the rest of the Bible, the Holy Spirit is instrumental in this process. You can't do it without the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians three seventeen through 18 Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So, live like the reality of who you are. You belong to Christ, He's your master. He saved you from the pit of despair he saved you from slavery of sin he's made you a new creation he's your good master now so in light of what he's done for you joyfully from the heart live for him and the only way you can do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit you do not have permission to do whatever you want so what was our former life like when we were slaves to sin well earlier he said you just kept sinning and sinning and piling on more sin. Notice what he says there in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, what does he mean you were free in regard to righteousness? What he's saying there is, it's kind of a, a difficult translation. What he's saying there is you, you really could care less about righteousness. When you were a slave to sin, you didn't really want to do what was right. You could care less. You may have had a guilty conscience from time to time. You may... Um, didn't like getting caught. You didn't. Maybe you didn't want to look bad in front of others, but ultimately in your heart of hearts, you did not want to do the right thing because you couldn't. You, you didn't have the ability to do that. Now, here's the sad paradox for non-Christians. Non-Christians often pride themselves on being, quote, free to do whatever they want. And they're not bound by religion or morality or Christian rules that hamper their ability to express themselves however they want to. Non-Christians look at us as Christians and say, look at all that freedom you gave up. When you became a Christian, you gave up all the freedom. Look at all the stuff you gave up. You gave up partying and drinking and drugs and alcohol and, and prostitutes. and I mean, whatever. You gave up all that. Look at all the freedom you gave up. And they may laugh at you and think, man, you, you, you guys are, now you're living in a prison. I'm free, but you're, you, you've given up a life of, of freedom to now go live in a prison. And so here's the question. Who's really living in the prison and who's really free? Is the non-Christian really free? Now, they may fool themselves, I'm free to do whatever I want. Yes, you're free to do whatever you want. But there's payment coming at the end. And you reap what you sow. And Paul's going to say that. Look at verse 21. Paul says, if you want to live however you want, and if you want to keep sinning as an unregenerate person, look at verse 21. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death. Paul's basically saying, hey, you may have had some temporary pleasure, you may have had some fun, you may have thought that you were you know, getting a lot of you know pleasure in your life, but what were you really bearing? What fruit were you really bearing? What what was really coming forth? What were you really reaping that you had sowed? Paul says it was death. This just really death. If you continue in unrepentant sin as a non believer, and you die without trusting in Christ, what the fruit you get at the payout, the harvest at the end of your life, is eternal death. And what Paul's saying is, if you had committed those sins, or you had continued in those sins and not been saved by grace, you would die in your sins and go to hell. The end would be eternal death. If God had not saved you, the the payout, the fruit that you would get would be death. And again, here's the sad reality for non-Christians. What do they think? Most non-Christians do not know they're enslaved to sin. Most non-Christians don't know that their end is death. What do they think they're doing? I'm getting pleasure. I'm getting fun. I have freedom. I'm living however I want. I'm expressing myself. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do. I can live however I want. Yes, you can. You can to the harm of yourself and others, and ultimately to your eternal damnation if you don't repent and trust in Jesus. So they're serving a master. The non-Christian is serving the master of sin, and they can't say no. They don't realize they're in prison serving a master because they think they're just doing things that they want to do, but really what they're doing is they're obeying a master that's leading them straight to eternal Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, Paul keeps making this contrast between your old life and your new life. What what was your old life? When you were a non-Christian, you just kept sinning and sinning and sinning and going down the spiral of sin. What fruit would you have gotten if you continued in that sin? You would have gotten condemnation and death. Okay, look at verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 22. He now talks about now. Okay, what about now? That, that's what it used to happen. What, what's your fruit now? What are you gonna, what, what's the harvest of your life going to look like now? Verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification, there's that word again, and its end, eternal life. So what do you get now? In your old life as an unregenerate Christian, your fruit was death. As a Christian who now has been saved by grace alone, what's the fruit you get? Well, number one, he says sanctification, which is that process of getting more holy. The Holy Spirit's going to sanctify you, and you'll have eternal life. That's a great blessing, eternal life versus eternal death. So the fruit is sanctification in the here and now. We get more and more holiness and character and the fruit of the Spirit. And ultimately, in the future, God's going to grant us the gift of eternal life. Now, you've probably read verse 623 out of context when you're doing witnessing, or maybe it's a verse you go to in the Romans Road, but you're probably very familiar with Romans 623. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, this is where he talks about the gospel, and so this is, this is where the gospel comes into play. Paul just kind of brings it to a crescendo, brings it to an apex here. What is he saying? If you continue in a life of unrepentant sin, what's the wage? What's a wage? Something you get paid. The payout at the end of your life is death, and that's not just like I cease to exist type death. It's Yeah, you physically die, but it's eternal death and separation from God. But what's the good news? The good news is you don't have to stay there. You can be freed from that life of sin. You can be freed from that life of, of hell. You can receive Christ as a free gift in salvation, and you will get eternal life. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, it's not something you can earn. It's not something you deserve. It comes by trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. You get the free gift of eternal life. So really, there's there's no middle ground. You're either a slave of sin, compounding more and more sin because you can't do nothing but sin, and that's going to lead to hell. That's one choice. That's one option. That's the, that's, that's the unregenerate, unsaved person. Or you are a Christian who has new life in Christ, God sanctifying you, you have the free gift of eternal life, but you still are a slave, but in a good way, you're a slave to Jesus as your master, and you can please him, and you want to please him, and he's a good master who loves you and is never going to leave you or forsake you, and, and he's, he's a good master. So does that make sense? So next time somebody comes up to you and says, "What does it mean to be a Christian?" You can freak them out and say, "It means to be a slave of Jesus." You're like, what are you talking about? We don't we don't use this language, do we? We don't talk about slavery because it's there's it's a trigger word. Now I want you to go to John chapter eight because I think Jesus addresses the same issue too of being a slave. So what's what's antinomianism? What's license? What is is the question that was posed to the theoretical hypothetical question that Paul was addressing? Can we keep living a life of unrepentant sin just so God will keep forgiving us? And what's the answer? By no means. You can't do it. Why? You're a new creation in Christ. You have a new master. You have new desires. You have new affections. You have the Holy Spirit. You are a new person. You're walking in newness of life. You can't go back to that old self. Now, Theologically, you can't go back to that old self, but some of those habits, you can try to go back and, and you may be tripped up by those habits. But ultimately, you can now say no to those, whereas before, you couldn't. So let's talk about Jesus here. So John eight thirty one through 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Okay, what's evidence that you're truly saved? There's three pieces of evidence that show that you are a Christian. Now, ultimately, we're not talking perfection here. We're talking Holy Spirit-empowered growth in you that a snapshot of your life, the totality of your life would show this, not in perfection, but just in, in the totality of your life. Number one, you abide in His Word. You abide in his word. If you abide in his words, there's a high probability that you are truly a disciple. And what does it mean to abide? It means to remain or to live or to read his word. So let me just ask you a question. We're not judging people's salvation here, but if you never read your Bible and you never crack it open and you never really spend time either listening to preaching, being in church, reading the Bible on your own, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but is there a high probability that something's wrong with your heart? Even if you are a Christian? You're going to want to abide in God's word. So the the, the the converse is also true. If you do not abide in his words, there's probably a high probability that you're not his disciple. So what does it mean to abide? That word means to live or to hold on to or to remain um, it's kind of what we've been talking about the past couple weeks, reading, meditating, memorizing. Do you delight in God's word? Do you, do you read it? Do you meditate on it? Are you growing in it? Colossians three sixteen: let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Are you abiding in God's word? Number two. You know the truth. Jesus says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, what truth is he talking about? Let me tell you this. There are a lot of things that are true. Let me give you some truths. Some things that are true. Okay. This is going to really be like a mind-shattering, mind-altering blow your mind. Okay. Okay. I'm a man. That's true, right? I've got blonde hair and blue eyes. That's true, right? I'm six foot two. I'm married to Don. I'm the son of Greg and Cheryl Cole. I'm the father to Aiden and Zach. Those are things that are true, right? Okay. But can I stand up and say I am the truth with the capital T? So there are a lot of things that are true. But there's only one, the truth. You will know the truth, and the, the truth will set you free. So truth with the capital T is the totality of Scripture, the written Scripture. So it means that you're not swayed by falsehoods, you have sound theology, you're discerning, you're not easily manipulated to believe heresy. Um, Paul says in Ephesians 4, that "...we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning." By discraftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, or to grow up in every way into Him who is the Head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part's working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. So you are—I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we kind of talked about this Sunday morning. You are embraced in sound theology. You're discerning. You know the truth, and the truth is setting you free. Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So Jude 3, beloved, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you appealing for you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So number one, you're abiding in God's word. Number two, you're not being swayed by falsehoods. You know the truth. The truth is setting you free. And then, evidence number three, you experience spiritual freedom from sin in the sense that you are not continuing in sin. Notice what Jesus says there in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's important, practices. It's in the present tense, which means you're continually, habitually, as a lifestyle, in a state of sin. He's not talking about specific sins per se, but more of a lifestyle of habitual, unrepentant sin. So, Let's talk about these two categories again. As a non-believer, are you a slave to sin? Yes. Why? Because you can do nothing but continually commit sin. You can't not commit sin. It's your master. Okay? As a Christian who's been set free from sin, are you habitually, continually, ongoingly, as a lifestyle, practicing sin? No. No. Does that mean that you never sin? That you're perfect? No. It just means that you now have the Holy Spirit in you that gives you the power to say no to sin, and you're not continuing in that sin. And when you do sin, you're you're quick to confess, you repent, you feel bad for it, and you go to the cross, and you ask forgiveness, and you want to be cleansed. So you really can't, in both Romans and in John here, you can't release yourself from the bondage to sin. What does it say there? The Son has to set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You've got to be set free by Jesus. Jesus has to set you free from sin. So when you're a slave to sin, Jesus sets you free. He adopts you into into the Father's family. Now you're a slave to righteousness with Jesus as your new master. And so here's the point of both Romans and John here. You... Cannot use this forgiveness, this grace as an excuse to continue to sin. Galatians 5:1. "For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't, don't go back to that. You really can't, but don't try to go back and live like you did before. Galatians 5:13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Okay, so we have these two ditches we talked about tonight. Legalism and license. And what's the antidote to both? Because they're both ditches you don't want to fall into. It's the gospel. The gospel is for both justification and and sanctification. So legalists don't believe the gospel. They may give lip service to it. So a legalist would say this, oh yeah, I believe Jesus died on the cross, he rose again, I believe that he forgives my sins, I believe that he's given me the Holy Spirit to live in my life, I believe that I'm totally forgiven and I'm going to go to heaven, but I've got to add some things just to make sure. Or, I'm not sure if that's too good to be true. There's got to be something I've got to do because there's no such thing as a free lunch. I've got to add something to it. Or I know Jesus died on the cross and he rose again and we're all sinners saved by grace, but I've created these lists over here to make me more spiritual and more accepted by God and I'm going to follow these because I've made them up and if you don't follow them, you're not as good as me and, and, and as a matter of fact, you may not even go to heaven and I'm going to heaven because I've made these rules up. You're not believing the gospel. What does the gospel say? The gospel says, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, he was buried, he rose again, he forgives us of our sins, he gives us his righteousness, he gives us the Holy Spirit, we have eternal life, and there's nothing I can add to that. I can't add anything to that. I receive it as a free gift, and I stand in the freedom of that, and I'm accepted, and I can't add or subtract anything to that. It's his work and his work alone. But a legalist says, we've got to add some things to that. Just to make sure. So they're not really believing the gospel. Okay, the licensed person, the antinomian, they don't believe the gospel. Because what do they say? They get it half right. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. Yes, he forgave me of my sins. Yes, I have my, my home in heaven. And yes, I have the Holy Spirit to live in me. And yes, I have this assurance that I'll never be, you know, Jesus will never leave me and forsake me. Therefore, I'm going to go live however I want because it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. They don't believe in the power of the gospel to keep them walking in holiness. So the legalist says, I don't believe the gospel because I'm adding to it. The licensed person says, I don't believe the gospel because I'm just going to go live however I want. So neither one of them actually believe in the gospel. So John Calvin was famous for talking about the double grace now he he used it in Latin it was called the duplex gratia the double grace but he says this first the first grace being reconciled by the righteousness of Christ God becomes to us instead of a judge a loving father that's justification God now becomes our father He's a loving Father. We're reconciled to Christ by the blood of Christ. We're saved. We're justified. That's the grace that gets us saved. But second, being sanctified by the Spirit, we aspire to integrity and purity of life. So you are justified by grace alone, and you're sanctified by grace alone. So think of it this way. You are initially saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But what do we sometimes do? Well, that's great. That's, that's I got in by grace. But now I have to live the rest of the Christian life in my own power. And you take grace totally out the window. That's not how it works. You are saved by grace, and you're sanctified by grace, and you're sustained by grace. It's from grace from first to last. So, sanctification is that process where we grow to be more and more like Christ and the Holy Spirit works in us that grace to be able to do it. We have the desire. We have the ability. And when we fail, because we're not going to be perfect, we know that our sins are forgiven. We confess our sins. He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. We have the security that He loves us and then we just get back up and go forward. And we fall back down, we go to the cross and get back up, and it may be painful, it may be slow, but you have the assurance that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 1, 6. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us your word to, to bring clarity. Lord, it is sometimes confusing when we read Romans to know exactly what this whole issue of slavery to sin and and slavery to you is. But Lord, we do know this, that you have set us free from our sins. You have given us a new heart. You have given us the Holy Spirit to live within us. You give us grace upon grace and we can pursue sanctification. We can walk in holiness, not in our own power, but because you give us that power in, in the gospel. So Lord, help us to avoid being legalists And Lord, help us avoid being those that would just have the attitude that we can do whatever we want because after all, we're saved. Those are two ditches we don't want to fall into. We want to be um, slaves to you. We are slaves to you, but we want to live like it. And so, Lord, help us to, to follow you and serve you as our good master and as our Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.